Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast. Novel technology enables encapsulated cell therapeutics without triggering fibrosis. I'm Brandy Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish, and joining me today is Dr. Paul Watton, CEO of Sigilon Therapeutics. Dr. Watton has held leadership roles at multiple companies with over 20 years in the biopharmaceutical industry. Before joining Sigalon, Paul led biotechnology company Okada Therapeutics before its acquisition by Estellas. Dr. Watton earned a Bachelor of Pharmacy degree from the University of London, holds an MBA from Kingston Business School, and received a PhD from the University of Nottingham. to begin today by asking you to provide a bit of background on Sigalon Therapeutics. Yes, so Sigalon Therapeutics is a new company that's um, a biopharmaceutical company that uh, is discovering and developing biocompatible encapsulated cell therapies. The company's discovery platform combines both cell engineering as well as uh, a revolutionary super biocompatible, what we call a fibromat technology, which is a new class of implantable biomaterials that do not trigger fibrosis. And uh, fibrosis is a scarring process where the body isolates foreign materials and it's historically prevented the successful development of encapsulated cell therapies. The capsules made with biocompatible late fibromas uh, are able to show not just cell survival and function, extended periods, but are also able to hide themselves in the body's own immune system and remain invisible, which means you can give allogeneic cell therapies now without the need for anything like immune suppression. And uh, in some of the cases we're looking at, we're developing uh, miniaturized cell factories that we can implant into the body to be able to enable patients to take an implant that can provide a missing protein for uh, years, which is what we're expecting to do over the longer term. That's really exciting technology. I, I'm interested, what were the, the main factors that really enabled the discovery of immune shielding biomaterials? So the, uh, the, the work was originally developed at uh, MIT under the guidance of Bob Langer and Dan Anderson, who are professors at the Institute of Medical Engineering and Science. And it was uh, initially sponsored by the Junior Diabetes Research Foundation. And they took a completely different approach to developing materials that are able to actively hide from the immune system. In fact, it was the first time where someone had taken a combinatorial approach to doing this. And the guys at MIT, with all the resources they had, they basically came up with a combinatorial library uh, that was screened for activities um, in a number of models, including what we call a high-throughput mouse and were able to screen these materials for the uh, ability to avoid being detected by the immune system. Why did Sigalon decide to apply its cell implant technology to protein deficiency disorders, and why partner with the diabetes program? Well, the, the company is able to encapsulate uh, many cell types, and we can engineer these cells to produce any type of protein, whether it's um, an enzyme replacement therapy, uh, a factor involved in hemophilia, 
or even uh, things like monoclonal antibodies, we can actually uh, engineer cells to produce these types of entities. Uh, the initial work that was done as a result of the sponsorship of JDRF was to take allogenate beta cell um, from uh, which basically to develop an artificial pancreas. And these cells could actually be encapsulated, sense the change in glucose levels, and push out insulin in response to that. And uh, what we decided as a company strategically was to go after indications where there was a high unmet need for patients, where there was a need to replace a deficient protein, where we could take the type of manufacturing technology that's used today in uh, manufacturing facilities and basically miniaturize it in the form of an allogeneic cell implant that could be given to a patient um, without the need for any immune suppression. So, you know, the obvious things to go after are things like the enzyme replacement uh, areas as well as the hemophilia areas. And that's where we chose to start out, although eventually there are numerous proteins that will be able to manufacture using this type of technology using state-of-the-art manipulation techniques such as CRISPR-Cas9, for example, or some of the uh, gene therapy approaches that are being used to transfect cells to produce things. That's great. And and specifically, what uh, current diseases are you looking at um, moving into uh, eventually clinical trials with? And and if you could tell us a little bit about you know what the current treatments look like for those diseases and 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 how this would be different. Yes, so that's a very good question, Brandy. So the the types of diseases there are about fifty different rare diseases where you are being required to replace proteins, and uh, some of these things like Pompe disease or uh, Gaucher's disease, Fabry's disease. All of those lend themselves to this type of approach. And the, the, the alternative for these patients is to uh, be placed on an intravenous therapy, which has to be given, uh, in some cases, up to three times every week for the rest of their lives. And you're giving bolus doses of these proteins, which um, often have short half-lives. So the idea here is that we can replace those bolus doses, which get up to very high blood levels in the sleep but drop off pretty quickly, um, but have to be given frequently and replace that with a therapy where you can give an implant that could last a patient a year or more, where they're getting a sustained and steady delivery of that protein as a replacement that you can just literally put in place and... Um, allow this patient to live a more normal life by taking them away from the need to have to inject on a regular basis. Great. And could you tell me a little bit about your preclinical results and um, how those support your move toward the clinic? Yes. So we have a lot of preclinical work actually around the platform, which was uh, applied to, in fact, the type 1 diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes work that was done. So all of the platform was developed using initially beta islet cells, and this is a sense and respond type of cell. So we've done a lot of work in animal models. There was a publication in Nature about uh, a year and a half ago which showed for the first time that an allogeneic cell therapy should be given to immune competent mice, which is an important distinction, and those cells would remain in place and they would function, they'd sense the glucose and, uh, levels and respond with insulin levels accordingly. 
And we were able to show in that later publication that we could keep those cells viable and more importantly functional for a period of at least six months. And there was no evidence of fibrosis forming around the implantation that had been given. And we've now extended that out to the point where we've shown in, uh, again, in incompetent rodents that these implants are now uh, afibrotic for a period of a year or more. Um, we've also been able to demonstrate, which is unpublished data, uh, and studies in primates, non-human primates, where we've also shown absence of uh, fibrosis around these types of implants, as well as functionality uh, for periods of uh, over four months now. Those are really exciting results. And what are your um, current activities and the next steps towards um, clinical development? That's a very good question. So we've actually done some things in the past uh, year since the company was formed. Uh, the most important one to start off with is to make sure that we could manufacture the technology in-house at Sigamon. And um, we were able to do that technology transfer and complete that successfully in April of this year. So now what we've been able to do is industrialize the process that we brought out of MIT. So that's the the implantation technology has been uh, scaled up and reproduced uh, under industrial scale a type of approach. And the second component of this is the ability to engineer cells in order to produce missing proteins. So we've been able to uh, take a cell line and uh, engineer it to produce a number of proteins. And more importantly, we've been able to show that we can now encapsulate those proteins using this afibromid technology in cells that uh, live happily in an encapsulated state, can manufacture the protein uh, over a prolonged period of time. And importantly, uh, the protein is able to diffuse out of those uh, encapsulation uh, implants and be able to find their way into the bloodstream that at decent levels in, in animal models. So we've been able to show that. And um, we've been able to show that we are able to get uh, large protein molecules out of the uh, encapsulation system, uh, including molecules that are north of 150,000 molecular weight or 150 kilodaltons, which is quite significant. And we'll say one thing is that we are able to uh, engineer the uh, mini-capsules such that they can release a protein of between 50 and 100,000, between 100,000 and 150 or above, depending on how we, um, we structure the, uh, the capsule. That's great. And the technology is so interesting. Um, I'm interested also, though, in the company and uh, wanted to ask you, what are some of the defining characteristics uh, beyond the technology itself that will affect the path to creating commercially viable therapies, in your opinion? Well, I think the... Um, the one characteristic which I think is really important is having the right people associated with the company. And so, you know, the company was founded originally by flagship pioneering, which uh, is a leader uh, in the Boston area, certainly, of um, initiating and founding uh, companies based on very interesting and exciting technology platforms. A good example of that would be Moderna Therapeutics, for example. So we have, with flagship, a group of people there who know how to uh, identify the right types of technologies to bring out of the lab in the university and to sponsor it to the point where it can uh, be developed and allowed to go into the clinic. And more importantly, flagship um, 
take a very um, important role in making sure that the company is funded correctly to the point where the critical mass has been achieved. And then secondly, the founders of the company, um, both from MIT, Dan Anderson and, and Bob Langer, uh, we did bring some of the uh, founders out of uh, MIT, people like Amin Beza, uh, joined us uh, for a year or so. He's just about to go down to Rice where he's starting an uh, materials uh, program down there. And so we, we brought people into the company straight on um, who had very good experience with the technology. We built a board of directors that included people like Jeff Flyer, who is an endocrinologist by train, but actually um, was a retiring dean at Harvard Medical School. So Jeff was able to bring that sort of uh, holistic approach to medicine to bear on the company right from day one and was very sort of familiar with some of the up-to-date technology that's being used in medicine today. We brought Bob Ruffalo on board, who was the president of R&D at Wyeth before the acquisition of uh, Wyeth by Pfizer. And Bob has tremendous experience in bringing products to market. Uh, but importantly, he'd actually already looked at using encapsulated cell therapy as a way to treat type 1 diabetes about 25 years ago when he was at GSK. So he had a real interest in the technology platform as well as all of the expertise and experience we needed to be able to bring that forward. And then we had a guy called Steve Ostley who uh, was the chief medical guy at Medtronic uh, for a while and is now a partner at NEA. Who Steve is able to bring that medical device background as well. And then you know, myself, I ran a cell therapy company before I joined here. I also had a polymeric delivery background as well in the past. And We've got a team together that can really bring everything uh, to the table that's needed to succeed with this type of technology. And ultimately, what this is about is building a strategy to identify the right areas to go into. So some of the other team members, for example, Devin Smith joined us from Pfizer R&D, where he was actually head of strategy development and operations at uh, their R&D unit, specifically around the cell and gene therapy space. So we brought all these people in that know the space, um, are very well connected, and uh, know how to do things successfully and provide us with great advice at the same time. That certainly is a very impressive group of people, and um, and I'm not surprising um, why the technology is is uh, so impressive and, and cutting edge, and so that's really exciting. That's all the questions that I had um, today. Do, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our readers before we say goodbye? Well, I think that um, one of the reasons I'm excited about this platform is because we can apply it to pretty much any biological that's being uh, produced today using a mammalian cell system can be miniaturized and uh, given to a patient as a long-term implant, which will eliminate the need for regular injections, as an example. Um, Another reason why it's exciting, I think, is because one of the things that's been holding back the more rapid uptake of cell therapies has been the need for an allogeneic cell therapy system that can be given to a patient without the need for any immune suppression. So we've been able to create that opportunity now with this A-fiber and that technology. And I think that one of the reasons this is very important is because cells have tremendous potential. And I think that uh, you know, you're seeing this now with things like the CAR-T therapies coming out. 
that people are recognizing the potential that cells have to, to help treat diseases. And what we're doing here is, a, I think it's quite an elegantly simple way of using cells initially, which is using them to produce missing proteins that can be expressed and help patients with some of these uh, medical needs in replacement areas like uh, gauchets or uh, some of the hematological disorders. And I think that with the approach we're using, we're working on developing proteins using cell technology. And these are proteins that are already there. So we're actually not identifying new targets. We're just creating a very uh, elegantly simple way of giving these molecules to patients in a very practical way too. And I think that apart from, sorry, apart from the, um, the opportunity there, I think we're also building this sort of future as well, Brandy, which is that when you look at some of the cell technologies that are coming down the road, I'm specifically thinking here of things like the synthetic biology approaches where you can engineer a cell to sense something that's in the bloodstream and then push out a therapeutic agent to counteract that. Um, that technology is in its infancy, but in 10 years' time, we're all going to be talking about synthetic biology as a tool. And I think that with what we have here is a platform that can enable that to become a reality as well. So pretty exciting time to be involved with uh, this type of area. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> and I know that um, I was really excited to be able to talk to you about it today. And I'm, I'm very interested in, in this technology. And I will anxiously await and watch as you move forward with it and, and look forward to seeing it progress uh, as you move forward. Thanks very much, Brandy. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other biomanufacturing and stem cell related topics, please visit us at cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, downstreamcolumn.com. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review and visit our other podcasts at Cell Culture Dish podcast on iTunes and Google Play.